Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. I'm David Lally, producer of the show. Once a month, our CEO, Derma Buffini, interviews people who've been there and done that in different areas of life. We call it Takeover Tuesday. Well, today, I'm taking over Takeover Tuesday, and I want to learn a little bit more about the guy I admire and also work for. I'd love to welcome Mr. Dermot Buffini, CEO of America's largest business coaching company, to his own show. Thank you, David. I appreciate being here. <laughs> i got to walk a fine line here. I'm one of your staff, and I'm about to ask you some questions. This is the nicest takeover of a takeover that's ever happened. Thank you. It's great to have you. You're the CEO of America's largest business coaching company, mm -hmm. but I would love to travel back in time to a land long, long ago uh -oh. and hear about Young Dermot, for those of, of us who don't know, long before my time, of course. You grew up not far from where my mother grew up in Dublin, and I'd love to hear about that. I'm sure many others would too. What yeah. was it like growing up in Dublin, Ireland? I'd say it was great. We had uh, six kids growing up south side of Dublin. Now, Brian's talked about a lot of podcasts and events. Um, I'm the fifth of six, so I'm the second youngest. I said five boys, one girl. Uh, we didn't have a lot, but we had everything we needed. A lot of fun, a lot of laughter in the house. Small house. So everybody was able to find their small space to exist. Mm. And, you know, Dublin was a, a great place to grow up in. It was a good-sized city, but it also didn't feel big. A lot of community, ton of sports, ton of laughter. And at the end of the day, just kind of like, uh, it was a very, very happy upbringing and a very happy childhood. Mm. I, okay, I'm going to ask an obvious question. I think that uh, some listeners to the show might want to know. Brian. Did he give seminars in the living room when you were growing up? Uh, he was always very animated and on the move and fast and curious and exciting to be around. He's just a character. He's just a character. He's a ball of energy. A guy who was always, as I said, always on the move, always learning and always rallying the troops at some level, you know, always rallying something. So, yeah, I guess he was, just not as formally, but he was... <laughs> He's a character now, and he was a character then, you know. Five brothers, Louise, the sister. Yep. Great family, great fun. Mom and dad are fun, and they're full of life. Mm -hmm. uh, what influence do they have on you? Just huge. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I think the soil you grow from, right? And a lot of times, mm. you know, your parents are the soil. And so they were very much a team. They kind of knew their roles. They supported each other. They didn't run in each other's lanes. You know, dad went out and made the living, and mom made the living good. You know, mom, she ran a household of six kids in a very small space, ran it very efficiently, did it on very little money. And my mother was very much the driver, very, you know, encouraging, you can do it, very tenacious, uh, very loving, but also a fierce competitor, hmm. ferocious competitor. My dad, a very loyal man, integrity, do the right thing. Very different people. He was more analytical. My mother was definitely the motivator. Myself and Brian would definitely take more after our mother in our personalities. But we definitely have our father's philosophy drilled into us. But the big thing that they always had is, number one, is they always had fun. They always knew to laugh. They never missed an opportunity to have a laugh. Mm -hmm. And they were always able to focus on the majors and not the minors. And they're just a great team. And even today, you know, their kids are gone. Their house is empty. As my mother says, it was a very small house when you're growing up. It's a very big house when yours are gone. But they're still a great team, and mm -hmm. they enjoy each other. Yeah, so they just had a huge influence just of what love looks like, which is not just a word. It's a commitment every day. Nice. It's in actions. The importance of laughter. Faith being a big piece, which is, you know, they didn't have a lot, but they knew that it was always going to work out. Mm -hmm. And we never felt 
that it wasn't going to work out. Even when there wasn't work. We had each other. They bred into us to look after each other. They bred into us to make sure you take care of people, that you're kind, you're respectful, you're generous, you're giving. So massive influence. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, I think that Buffini and Company is where it is today because of what was instilled of us in, in those days. And, and that really doesn't leave you. They're great people to visit. I feel lucky to have sat in that sitting room and uh, probably cried laughing. That's typically my role in that. I just have to leave sometimes to get your breath. You guys are fun to be around. There's no question. I've known you a long time, and I know some of the stories that maybe people don't about young Dermot as a sports star. So who was he? And what was he like? I was pretty athletic. There wasn't a sport really I couldn't do. Mm. came easy to me. I didn't go anywhere without a soccer ball. You know, if I were to go down to the store, I was heading the soccer ball down. Maybe that causes some of the issues I have today, head injuries, etc. But there was always a ball at my foot. And I was either running somewhere, sprinting somewhere. And so I love sports. Athletics was something that I found a lot of confidence in. As I said, I played multiple sports, but I was very serious about soccer growing up. Mm. Started playing golf when I was 10. Still love to play golf. But I was a competitor, always have been a competitor, and wanted to actually play soccer for a living. You know, I saw guys do it, and I was like, that's what I want to do. You decided that? Yeah, I decided that. And then at 15, I broke a disc in my back. That was kind of the end of it. And I didn't know it was the end of it at that time. You broke a disc in your back. I mean, it's not a small (laughs) detail there. The Irish medical system is far better now. But back then, they diagnosed it as a torn hamstring. So I ended up playing with a broken disc in my back for about a year. So the only relief I got was actually when I played sports because I'd have blood flow, the adrenaline would be flown, and then literally I'd cry myself to sleep every night for about a year until such times my parents said, maybe it's not a torn hamstring. And went down and one of the doctors said, well, he's a bit young to have back problems. I go, well, there might be a small possibility that's the case. So they did a series of um, x-rays, etc., and found out I'd broken off a piece of my disc, Mm. my L5, and it was trapped underneath the nerve. But somehow I was able to play soccer for about another year with that. I don't know how that happened. But but anyway, I recovered from that. I was 15. That was kind of a hard thing to deal with because I'm like, well, oh, it's a lot of pain. I still didn't know that the soccer thing was kind of, that was done because it's, you know, nobody's coming in to look for a kid who's got a, a serious injury like that to play in a sport that's long term. And then I still pursued it. And then I had an opportunity to come to the States on a soccer scholarship. And the coach said to me, I don't have a scholarship for one more year. But what I want you to do is I want you to work, earn some money, so that you come to the States, you have a few bucks in your pocket. But I also want you to put on some weight. And so I really nailed the weight thing. I mean, I really <laughs> nailed it. Nobody has ever said it to me since. <laughs> so that was my, my orders. I want you to come and play in college. We'll give you a scholarship. And so I ended up, a neighbor of mine, his father owned a, some shoe stores called Zerup. And they were fashion shoes, and they were a big name in Dublin. They had about five stores. And he said, well, do you want to come and work and sell shoes in the shoe store? So I said, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I was nothing else to do. So I did that. And after a while, I realized I really had a fun year and was earning money, and I was having a good time, and the soccer was getting a little further and further away. And I wasn't really excited about going to school. I was never a great student. And eventually I just said, no, you know, I really don't want to go mm. and pursue that. I want to work. I want to earn money. I want to learn business. And maybe it wasn't as intentional as then because a lot of the decision making was just around, this is great fun and I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of the soccer. I never pursued the scholarship. And I ended up getting into the business world and, and I learned retail sales, selling shoes in downtown Dublin and Grafton Street, learning to sell shoes to men 
and learning to sell shoes to women and realizing they were two very different animals to sell shoes to. You know, yeah. guys would come in and go, can I have a black pair of shoes or a brown pair of shoes? And it's either a size nine or a size 10. And when I served the ladies, it was a massive hunting expedition that you didn't think there might be any end to it. And so I learned a lot in that. Athletics and that kind of background helped me compete. It gave me a lot of confidence. But then it transitioned into, I took that into kind of business. Right. Were you good at uh, sales? Yeah, I think it was naturally just very, because I think sales is service, right? And all services is helping someone. Mm. And I always wanted to help people. It's something fun about someone comes in to look for something and you help them find it. I mean, that's the essence of sales. It's not helping somebody to make a decision they don't want to make. It's mm. helping somebody make a decision that they want to make and that they're going to be excited about. And at the end of the day, if they left happy, that meant I was happy. Yeah. And if I got paid for it, that was double. So yeah, I think I had obviously had a natural gift for it. I've always been, like even as a young kid, I knew I could connect with people very quickly, that I could get on well with people, that I enjoyed people. So I think starting in sales, that was obviously a huge head start and then obviously just learning the process of getting better at your trade and learning some skills when it comes to selling that that came later in these earlier stages what did you learn like what was it about that job that you moved to england you worked in sales there what did you learn i think the progression for me was retail sales right so retail sales is somebody walks into a store they want to buy something you don't have to find them you don't have to go out on the street to hustle them down they're coming into a store with They've got an end game in mind. So retail was great because mm-hmm. I learned the service side of sales. But I always had the mindset of like, and this has been the same today, but I, you know, early on, my folks definitely instilled this to me and say, if somebody's going to pay you a dollar, give them a dollar fifty worth of value. Mm. Do more than they ask you to do. If you do more than you're asked to do, eventually you're going to have more to do and you're going to be paid more for it. Nice. But I did the retail and that was fun. And I learned a ton there. I learned a ton about that business and the retail and taking care of customers, etc. But then I progressed into the financial services industry. And I went for an interview at a major institution in Ireland. I was very young. I was the youngest person they ever hired in that position. <laughs> I later found out what it really meant was I was going into the financial services was that I was going to be selling insurance door to door and <laughs> collecting policies door to door. And that is a whole other animal mm-hmm. because now you learn the hustle side of sales, the rejection side of sales. I did it. I did pretty decent at it but I didn't like it Mm. I didn't like banging on doors and uh, tormenting people and I also learned that you've got to have a clear objective when you do that stuff because most of the houses I called on they'd be elderly ladies there and I'd be collecting their penny policy so basically they'd pay for their insurance every week a little bit at a time they didn't have a lot of money so I'd collect those fees every month and they knew here's a young lad coming along and he's about the fifth one that's been here in about six months in this job so he probably won't be here long but I'm going to use him well while he's here. So I ended up collecting the penny policies, but some of the ladies would be like, hey, would you mind? I've got some groceries in the back of the car. Would you mind bringing them in? Of course I will. So I bring in the groceries and I put them on the table. I said, would you mind? I can't reach that shelf up there. Would you put them? So I end up putting away the groceries. And after about 10 houses, my day is almost done. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm after getting work like a rented mule here. I didn't sell any insurance. I didn't collect a whole lot of money, but I did a ton of work. Mm-hmm. So I learned the hustle side of sales, but I also learned the, you know, you got to manage your time and you have to have a goal. Mm-hmm. From there, I ended up in the transportation business logistics and logistics is the logic of moving something from one place to another so in each stage i kind of learned the sales side of it but i learned the operational side of how do you make the sale in the transportation business i learned how do you move something from one place to another as fast as you can and you only have a certain amount of money to do it 
So if you get it wrong in any shape or form, if you miss a collection, if you miss a delivery, it costs you money because the customer wasn't going to pay you any more money. Mm. So it was a lot of pressure. And I ended up opening up a couple of offices for a company. I was pretty young. They gave me the opportunity to open up in a couple of different countries. And then eventually a couple of us went stuck on our own and we opened an office in London and one in Birmingham and Dublin. And, and it was going pretty good. But that taught me the, as I said, I got the retail side of sales and in the shoe store, I got the kind of hustle side of sales in the financial services, sun insurance store to door. And then ultimately the logistical side of operating a business. And I think, you know, all of those things, when you combine them together, you can see how they all play a part in, in the role that I do today. Mm. So it's been a very unplanned, unintentional process from where I landed. But to the core of it, I was very focused on doing the same things in each industry. And that was to do more than I was asked learn as much as I could, provide as much value as I could, and ask people for help. And even, you know, CEO today of, of a, a large company, all those things have stood to me. I see that. I see that in you all the time, how you deal with us, how you lead this group of people in Buffini and Company. I love, I think it's the first time I've ever heard logistics described as the logic of moving things. It's funny. I love that. I don't know why. I love maps, hmm. uh, so maybe there's something to <laughs> you love that. logic. I do love logic. I just don't know anything about it. <laughs> uh, moving things from A to B. Well, logistically, you made a big move from A to B. You left England, yep, and you moved to America. Why and how did that happen? Well, you know, Buffini Company started in 1996, and I was in, in the UK at the time. And my brother was out doing seminars, and I was like, what is he doing? I mean, that's a foreign concept when you're in Ireland, right? What's he doing? Is it out with Satan, in with Jesus? Is it three easy payments in 1995? I mean, what is he doing over there? So I had a healthy level of kind of like, uh, maybe not cynical, but kind of like, I'm not sure about that. So I'd come over a couple of times, and Brian was like, why don't you come over? Why don't you come over? Why don't you come over? And I really, I was doing my thing. And I needed to do my thing. And all the brothers were involved in this seminar and helping people. And I could tell there was a lot of energy behind it, but I really didn't kind of understand it. And I was a little standoffish with it. So in 1997, I came to see Brian and go to an event in Seattle. And the boys were still, come on, come on, come on over. You know, join us. This is great. We'll all be together and we'll do it. And I was like, all right. So anyway, I'll go to an event and no harm done. So I walked in the room and... I don't know if anybody else feels this way, you know, listening in here, but how many of you would go to your siblings' seminar for two days? <laughs> you know, anytime I ask that, people are like, no. And I felt the same way. I'm like, why am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. So I went in and I kind of watched Brian do his thing. And very quickly I went, whoa. You know, I'd kind of put him in a spot in my world that didn't apply to the world he was in now. And I just went, this guy is doing exactly what God's designed him to do. Like, this is God given talent, his ability to communicate, connect with an audience acknowledge where they were but give them hope for what they could be and what they could do mm. and I was like blown away but I was still skeptical of the audience because to me you know there's people listening to this podcast from all over the world and they'll get this but we admire the Americans for their enthusiasm their motivation but we're also skeptical because we also know you know what the other side of it's like and that exists too so for me I was thinking well maybe this is just a very emotional group of people who go to seminars you know maybe they're more like their eyes don't dilate and they kind of are following the guru over the cliff so what I do is I ask questions so why are you here and people would say you know what this has changed my business and it's changed my life and then your brother has changed my business he's changed my life your brother's changed my business and over and over again when you're looking in someone's eyes you know whether or not all the lights are on mm. or they're just kind of there for something else. Right. And this wasn't the seminar junkies going to the event. 
This wasn't the rah-rah people showing up just to hoop and holler. These are people who wanted to learn. They wanted to grow. But they also connected with the philosophy of what Brian was sharing and identified with his story. And he was able to help them see themselves in his philosophy and his story and encourage them. So I left very impacted, but I still went back to London. And then I got a phone call one night where Brian's son, Alex, had fallen into a swim pool and almost drowned. And it was a profound moment because I was sitting in a, an apartment in London with my roommate, who was an Irish lad, and he goes, your brother called today, everything's okay, but your nephew almost drowned today. And he was two years of age. And I had this moment going, okay, I don't know this kid. I really haven't been around my brothers in a long time. I've started a business. It's going okay. But what's the best case scenario here? That it succeeds. Well, is this really where I want to be? So it was a lot of thoughts combined at one time. And I've really felt like in that moment, it was a real decision point, Mm -hmm. which was I either stay here and I do my thing or I go and move into a family and a life and I get to know them. So I made a huge commitment and I said, I'll go for three months. So I called my brother. I called him and I said, hey, I'm going to come to the States. And he was like, you're kidding me. I'm after you for three years and you're saying no. And now you said you're going to come. When are you going to come? And I go, Thursday. And he goes, well, what Thursday? And I said, well, today is Tuesday. And then the next day is Wednesday. And I'll be in the <laughs> States on Thursday. And he just died laughing. He's like, well, this is fantastic. So I came over November 9th, 1999. And on November 11th, 1999, I went to my first event as a kind of a, a worker be a Buffinian company. Now, what happened in that process from then on, my feet didn't hit the ground. I was on an airplane. I was going hard for a long time. But all of my experience, when you go and work for a sibling, also with the Buffini name, it doesn't mean anything when you come to Buffini Company because we're all in it together. So all of my experience really didn't have a place at Buffini Company. Running my own business, working with large corporations in England, being the head honcho. So when I started a Buffini Company, whatever the lowest rung on the ladder was, I was two below it. So I called people to fill seminars. It wasn't that there's a hall pass here because you're Buffini. It's almost you're no, working harder it, because you're It was Buffini. almost like a hazing experience. And <laughs> okay. I still have a question about it. And I want to ask him this. I think there was some passive aggressive behavior as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, I had this opportunity. That's the only opportunity that was available. Mm. So I did everything I could. I did well at it. Guess what? I got the next opportunity, which was selling memberships and talking to people about coaching. And I did that and I did well at it. And then I progressed to the next level, which was running the events. Now, that's where the logistical side of my experience kicked in. So I was doing the sales the same way as my career started. I was doing sales. I was hustling for sales. History was repeating itself just in a different way. And I had to humble myself to go, my experience doesn't count for anything anymore. All that counts is what I'm going to do with the opportunity I have. That progressed into running the events. Then I had the logistical side of things again, moving 40 people through events, massive amount of AV equipment, transportation, organizing the show with a goal at the end of it to provide value to our existing members and showcase our services so we could attract some new people. And then in 2003, Brian came to me. Our footprint was expanding and companies were getting involved and they were kind of unsure of us and they weren't sure, you know, are you a friend or a foe? Are you about you and the agents or are you interested in us as a company? And so Brian came to me and said, look, I see these companies showing up. I don't think they really understand what our agenda is and what we're trying to do. And you've done a great job serving along the way. I know your past experience that you have the corporate development side. Mm. And that's why there's seasons of preparation in all of our careers. So sometimes it's not going the way we want it to go. Sometimes it's, I'm not getting to apply my experience on what I know. And the reason is because it's not needed in the company. And then if you just serve where you are, it's amazing what opens up. And in 2003, as I said, which was April Fool's Day, it was April 1st. I didn't think about that until just now. Maybe I should have thought about that some more. But he said, look, we need to start developing relationships with these companies. I said, I'm in. And I didn't question. I was just like, I'm in. Mm. 
So I transitioned the events team in to run the events, and then I went full bore at building relationships in organizations with new organizations. I did that for 13 years, and ultimately that helped us grow. Right. I opened up new markets. We opened up Canada. We've had 3,800 people go through our programs in South Africa. And again, that wasn't the intention. The goal was just to serve who we had, build a relationship with them, communicate our goal of wanting to serve them so we could build trust with them so that they'd want to refer all their agents mm -hmm. to us. And it was a great experience. And then that led up to October 2013, where Brian just said, look, you know what? You've done a fantastic job. And I think for this next season of Buffenian Company, I'm the CEO, but I think based on what you know and your experience and what you've done, I would like you to consider being CEO for this next season because we're going to need someone with your experience and what you do and your mindset to do it. So it's quite a journey. It is. And also, you know, every month we have a new group of servant leaders who join the company. Now, servant leadership sounds like a very churchy term. All servant leadership is, is it's a mindset of putting your customers and others first. It's not you're a leader, so you get a bunch of servants. The leadership style is through serving each other. So every month we have a new group of folks start at the company and I tell them my story because I'm telling them, listen, this is what I had to do. It didn't matter my experience. It didn't matter about my ego. It didn't matter about anything I knew. I just had this opportunity and I gave it everything I could. And guess what? When my experience was needed, it was utilized as the company grew. And I'm going to ask the same of you. And then we go through our core values and our mission. But I think there's something powerful for them to know that I know my story. I don't forget my journey. And I can encourage them as they're entering a new career at Puffinian Company where we're like, we want you to have a heart to serve. Mm. I think people certainly feel that here. As part of the preparation for this interview, I talked to a lot of people at the company, and I just asked them what words that came to mind about you as a businessman, as a leader, and as a person. So I suppose the first category is a businessman, because we're talking about your role now as the CEO and this journey you've taken, and I've seen that for years. Thinker, creative, fun, focused, an exceptional connector of people, pioneering, sees opportunity everywhere, builds a network so he learns what other companies are doing how they became successful, how we can apply that. And then he goes back and offers that company our help. And what can we do to serve them? Mm -hmm. Excellent of business development. People enjoy the sales process. They never feel like they're being sold to. Enjoys the hunt, enjoys bringing in the deal, and then has a great support group to support those people that we serve. Entertains, motivates with analogies like nobody else. Says the difficult things that no one wants to bring up sometimes. Mm -hmm. Isn't afraid to have crucial conversations. So there's a lot of stuff there. This is people across the company that I spoke with. You know, it hasn't all been plain sailing. Mm. What are some of the challenges you've experienced along the way? What are some of the pain points or the difficulties that you're like, ah, I definitely learned something on that? I think the constant pain point is myself, right? For all of us, it's like you come to the end of the road. You come to the end of yourself. And it's like you think entertainment charm, synergy, you know, this, that, and the other. At some point, it doesn't work for you anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the pain points have been, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when things aren't going your way? What do you do when somebody doesn't buy into what you're saying? And again, what you do is you'll learn some skills. You've got to go and ask some people for some help and ask people the questions like, look, here's who I am. Here's what I do. What would you do if you were me? And I've always, I've got a list of about eight people I meet with on a regular basis who are people I respect, I admire, I align with their philosophy and I trust them. And I'm able to go to them and just be real with them and say, I have no clue what I'm doing in this situation. What would you recommend? What would you do? It doesn't mean I always do it. 
But if there's always that connection with people who are not emotionally connected to what you're trying to do, mm. have past experience and walk through themselves and can tell you the story of what they've done. And I think if you're open for that, you'll grow. And you'll grow because because you're trying to grow. And there's a lot of challenges, you know, recessions. And, you know, we've had staff members pass away. And at the end of the day, everybody has a pebble in their shoe. But I think you either focus on the pebble in the shoe or you focus on, you know, I know there's a solution out there because there's nothing new. There's nothing that I'm facing today that nobody hasn't faced ever, you know, in all of life. It's the same stuff. And somebody has had your problem probably worse than you've ever had it or will ever know it. And they're only too happy to share their experience. And then again, I think that's how I've always done it. It's like, I might not know what to do today. And if I don't know what to do today, I don't try and force it over the line. There's some day when it's just like, you're not going to fix that today. Right. You're not going to sort that out today. So don't try and fix that today. So having a group of people who speak into your life, always looking for mentoring, mm. always looking for the opportunity to mentor others and encourage others. And you know what? They say a problem shared is a problem solved. And there's so much resource and willing souls out there to help all of us. And at the very essence, that's what Buffinian Company is to all of our clients. Mm. It's a safe place to come in and say, I have pain. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. And that's what we do as an organization. So I think it would be fairly remiss of the CEO of Buffinian Company not to participate in that type of experience. Because as you go through an experience like that, guess what? A, you have you have empathy for people who are going through that because you're aware of it yourself. Number two is you're encouraged by your own journey because you know you've gotten through it and you're able to look somebody in the eye and say, you're going to get through this. Mm. You're going to be okay. And as an organization, we have 215 team members who do that every day in such an amazing way. Right. And I'm a part of it, but I also want to be a participant in the journey with our clients. Both you and Brian do something. Maybe you would say this is a natural talent you have. You communicate incredibly well and share like how you're going to go first as a leader. Like I said, I, I polled people on three different things and some of the feedback I got, intuitive, humble, kind of confident, checks his ego at the door, willing to have the tough conversations. Like I said, he's a great communicator, gives the team free reign to accomplish the goal. And I think that's something, just watching you and I, I feel lucky that I get to have kind of mentoring conversations with you. You're really good at identifying the thing and letting people go to work on that thing they come up with their own solutions mm-hmm. you kind of guide it along you would be the opposite of a micromanager yeah which i think is very encouraging for people what are the routines for yourself that you would share with with us so you've two audiences really you have your staff mm-hmm. and then you have the people that buffinian company serves so what routines mm-hmm. work for you well i think a couple of things is you got your your headset you have your heart set and you have your soul set. Like all of us at some level, that's that's who we are as people. And you can't really help somebody in any meaningful way if you're really not taking care of yourself in each one of those categories. So every day I try to do something in each one of those areas. What's on my mind? Like what's going on in my head? What am I thinking of? What are my doubts? What are my ideas? What are my concerns? And amazing when you put them on paper, you feel better about them. You do that? You jot yeah. stuff down? And I'll kind of give you a formula here in a second, mm-hmm. how you can do this. But the second thing is what's going on here. What do you want? What do you see? What do you feel? What's your intuition? And again, writing those things out. And by here, he's pointing to his heart. For those not My watching large on TV. Heart. <laughs> Thank you. This. Thank you. But then, then the last thing is your soul. I don't know where it is. 
I don't think it's ever been identified. I just believe that we have them. And those things are the deep, 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 deep desires of your heart. And it's, you know, for some people, it might be just listening to Headspace for 10 minutes a day. Other people, it's going for a walk. Other people, it's going to prayer. For me, it's prayer, meditation, all of the above. And then also, what are the things that feed your soul? Hanging out with people you love, people you enjoy. You know, for us, our souls are fed growing up through laughter mm. and storytelling. And so, so just feeding yourself. So here's something I learned a few years ago. It was through a pastor called Alistair Begg, who's a Scottish minister, and he's, he's got the great Scottish accent, and you can listen to him all day. And he said, you know, some of the things you want to do is you're preparing even for communicating or communicating for a conversation or communicating or just going through a process of getting this stuff out of yourself. Number one is to think yourself out. If you're maxed out and overwhelmed, you probably don't have much mental capacity left. And doing more is not going to help that scenario. You know, if you're mentally tired, that'll take you a long time to recover from. I'm going to do a podcast here in the not too distant future with a brain surgeon. I got a lot of questions to ask him about the brain, <laughs> but it's something that has to be really respected. Mm. So thinking yourself out creates capacity. It stops the overwhelm. Put it out on paper. Don't censor yourself. Don't try and make sense of it. Don't worry about us reading it. A lot of it will be gobbledygook. But you know what? You'll create room for yourself and eventually you'll narrow in like sifting through the mud to look for the diamonds. You'll find the diamonds in your thinking. So you think yourself out. And if it's a topic that you want to address and you want to work on and you want to grow in, the next step is reading yourself full. So what blogs, what books? That's nice. You know, so you read yourself full and it could be listen to podcasts such as the Brian Buffini show, maybe take over Tuesday or take over, take over Tuesday. <laughs> but you listen to those things driving and it's kind of like, it's just filling up your mind with some other things on a topic that you connect with in your own way, with your own specifics. And then once you've done that and you've read yourself full and as I said, you're listening to the good stuff. The next step is you write yourself clear again. Mm. So I've gotten it out on paper. Now I'll put some good stuff in. Now I'm going to write again. And when you do that, you just get a lot of clarity. You get a lot of peace. You get a lot of certitude. And it honors the process of your head, your heart, and your soul. Mm. And if you want to really, really take it to the next level, then you go and meet with some people who you'd really trust. And you know that they have your best interests at heart. They're encouragers. There's a proverb that says, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And that's where you get to check your thinking. You get to check that against somebody. where Somebody goes, that's you. Oh my gosh, that, that is so you. Nice. And so you're not relying on anybody else to do it for you. You're doing the work yourself. Mm. But it's just identifying what your true north is and pursuing that. So that's some of the routines. Obviously working out. I've had a bad back for 31 years. I'm 45 years of age. And I, every week it goes in the schedule. My boss, Kristen Davis, gets it on my schedule twice a week. It's a no matter what. It doesn't matter how busy it is. She's like, we're getting that in the calendar. Because she knows things are going to go better if that happens. Mm. So there's not a week that goes by where I don't meet with my trainer. Once a month, I'll get a massage. I will go and meet with people. I'll get outside of Buffini Company's walls. I'll go and see someone else's business. I'll go to another conference. And I'll be honest with you, this is all fairly new for me. Because when you're designed to take care of others, the last thing you do, like so many people listen to this, you don't do self-care. And at the end of the day, self-help, you know, I get it. We're kind of in it. But self-help is nice. But there's no such thing as... It's very hard to help yourself. You need an army. You know, have a personal board of advisors that are speaking into your life in one of those areas of, of your life. So I get a lot of help. I've lately really understood the importance of taking care of myself and taking responsibility and ownership and paying attention to those things. Because mm. you know when you're doing well 
and you know when you're not doing well and how do you get back to what you look like and what you sound like and what you feel like when you're at your best tracking it along the way I yeah mean, just paying attention yeah you know for those who are not that familiar with Buffini and company the company that Dermot runs we coach and train people we're in the business of hey did you do this you said you were going to do it have you followed through on that mm-hmm. we have people in coaching for 20 years with mm-hmm. us because of everything you just said. Uh, it's taken the self out of self-help, right? I've, I've heard mm-hmm. Brian say that. The accountability is, is huge. I think you just naturally, you do naturally develop, encourage, and help people to grow. You can't help yourself. I mean, your number one attribute is someone who loves to build and grow teams. Right? Mm-hmm. That's obvious by you. You know, you're someone who you help people, you encourage them. Mm-hmm. It's, team building is just part of who you are. It seems like a natural role for you to be leading Buffini & Company. You're loved inside that company. You know, the feedback is so strong. I think people feel that you've got their back. What would you have been, do you think, if it wasn't Buffini and Company? What else could you have seen yourself going into? Well, I guess, you know, I could be in real estate like lots of people here, serving people. Mm. I think anywhere where it's interacting with people and helping them get from one place to the other, whether that's a service you provide, consulting with people, mm. I don't know, it could be a ministry. You know, I do love to encourage. So, again, something probably in business, something to do with growing something. At the end of the day, I'm not just interested in growing something for the sake of growth or size or even money. Mm. I'm interested in growth because, you know what? We have potential. And I have potential. And every person and everything has potential. And I love just getting after and seeing what's possible. What are we capable of? Mm. What are you capable of? What am I capable of? What are we capable of as an organization? And not maintaining the status quo. Right. When you take responsibility for those things, you do grow and you achieve your potential. So what would I be doing if I wasn't doing something something to do with that? Mm. And probably with another business. But at the end of the day, if I wasn't getting to do those things, I wouldn't be working at it. I wouldn't be involved in it. I wouldn't be interested. Mm. So I'm sure business would be, is something that I'm really interested. That's my new sport is business. Nice. And it has been. And that took over from as a kid. That's my sport now today. But I think it's not winning at all costs. And it's also turn around and, and one of our core values inside the company is winning together. You know, when our customers win, we've done our job. If the company wins, that means that's feedback to the company. And then everybody who works at Buffini Company, that they win, not just financially, but they win based on who they are and what they have to contribute. You do that at every company meeting. You talk about certain things, tell the world, do it better, win together. So that's kind of a mantra that we hang our hat on. We are, Our mission is to impact and improve the lives of people. But mm-hmm. those three things, I think, are very uh, solidifying for bringing a whole group of people who are doing different things in their day job together under that. I think everyone can kind of lock in somehow on a piece of that. For a typical listener to this show, if you were to distill all the things that you've learned on the journey from banging the phones, starting a Buffini company here, and working your way up through the ranks to the CEO, leading tens of thousands of our clients around North America and the world. You've learned a lot. What's the one takeaway that you think could encourage people listening to this today who might be, you know, they're not there. Maybe they don't want to be. Maybe they, they're headed, hopefully, for a CEO role in their life, or they have a small business. Mm-hmm. How would you encourage them? Well, a couple of things. One is learn to talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. You know, we all know our imperfections. We know ourselves better uh, than anyone else and the things we don't like, the things we don't enjoy about ourselves, whatever. And they may be true, but that doesn't mean that it's all true. And at the end of the day, you know, maximize the positives, maximize your strengths, own them, look for all your opportunities saying, this is what I do well. 
you know, I heard a guy do a podcast recently where he was talking about hell yeah or hell no. Like, if it's hell yeah, get it on the list and go for it. Love it. If it's hell no, don't try and do it. You're not going to do it well. You're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to be encouraged. Find your lane, run in it, grow in it. Mm. And if you find what you love to do, you'll invest in it. You'll also find tons of people who do those things really well that you'll learn from. Mm. So that's number one. I think number two is Shane Sweeney, who was one of the founders of Instagram, who we had on the show a couple of months ago. In the technology world and in the world that we're in today, where there's shiny object syndrome everywhere, where everybody's a squirrel, what about that opportunity? What about that opportunity? This opportunity, etc especially in the technology world, his advice was, you know, one of his pet peeves was listening to people who said, I wish I had somebody else's opportunity. If I had that, my circumstances would be different. My outcomes would be different. For me, all I've done is, this is the opportunity I have. Nothing else exists. I'm all in on this opportunity. Until such time as it's really clear, I'm not good at this. This is not what I want. But you know what? There's something to be learned in every opportunity that you have. But I think not getting focused or distracted by left and right by other people's opportunities, comparing yourself against someone else. This is what you have. Go for it. Learn it. And then the last thing is just remember that most of what we deal with are heartbeats, your own and someone else's. And relationships, they're give and take. There's good and there's bad. There's sinner and saint, sometimes all in the same conversation. Having grace for yourself about I know where I'm falling down, where I'm not getting it done will allow you to have grace for other people and connect with them in maybe where they're struggling so that you can encourage them. That's really nice. Because you can get so focused on what you're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. and you turn around, no one's behind you. And I think that's, it's much more fun to celebrate at a party together to go, look what we did rather than look what I did. Yeah. So that's uh, my that's two awesome. cents worth. Like I said, analogies, they just come so metaphors and analogies. I mean, I don't know that you're capable of speaking without them. Yes, I apologize. Because it, makes, it makes life a lot richer. That's gorgeous. I love the heartbeat thing. I think that's a huge reminder for people that when it comes down to you, turn around and there's nobody behind you. That's a sad day. You want mm-hmm. Moving together as a group. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Ooh. Brian always does this at the end of his show, but I have a few different ones. All right. So we'll go from the beautiful, deep, spiritual answers you just gave to absolutely frivolous, shallow stuff here. Perfect. You love a good cup of Irish tea. I do. So, if you could have a cup of tea with anyone, who would that be? Oh, my mother and father. Any of my family members. My kids. People I love. People I enjoy. Love it. Obviously, the answer would be Jesus to everybody. But if I could have a cup of tea with outside of that group, it would be Dwight D. Eisenhower. Why is that? Because of the sheer responsibility he had on his shoulders as supreme commander of all the Allied forces, where there was such evil rampaging, not just in one country, but all over the world. And he had this moment of decision to write a plan to invade Normandy, where the plan called for eight to 10,000 young Americans to be dead by 8 o'clock in the morning. And to have to go through that and know that that was the cost, ultimately, of a bigger picture in freedom. That wouldn't be a cup of tea. That would be... A long conversation. So, you know, that's one person that comes to mind that I would love to go, whoa, what did it go through? What did you think? How did you make that decision? And uh, so he'd be be right up there. I would love to listen in on that conversation. If you had to make one thing compulsory, either in the company or just in general, what would it be? Respect. Nice. I don't think there's any further follow-up questions on that. Love that. What puts you in a bad mood? disrespect 
people not treating people well. It's rude. Mm. People being rude. People being uh, disrespectful, not valuing somebody else. That might do more than get me in a bad mood. That might involve a, a kilt, some paint, and a screaming man running down the hill. <laughs> so that would be where it gets... Uh, that's where I get my Irish up. Mm-hmm. How long until you turn pro golfer? <sighs> I said to you, I would achieve all my goals, my weight goals. I would be very, very skinny because I wouldn't be earning any money from doing that. <laughs> it's, it's a nice hobby, but it wouldn't be a great profession. But I enjoy the game. Love. Love it. <laughs> Dermot, thank you so much. I've learned a ton. I hope our listeners have learned a ton. This was fantastic, the takeover of the takeover. Uh, I really appreciate you letting me come in here and ask you questions. Thank you. For our listeners, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. We love seeing that feedback, and it gets the word out there. Dermot is going to leave us today with a blessing his grandfather always said. And again, Dermot, thanks so much for letting me take over your takeover. Great, and I'll be back next month with another takeover too as I'm looking forward to but thanks David this was fun thanks so much alright folks well as we like to leave the show always with the blessing our grandfather always said may the roads rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back and may the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face and until we meet again may God hold you in the hollow of his hand see you next time Bye.